circle the block again. So, Leo. Yes, Jim. In 20 words or less. Oh, no. Producer's cut or theatrical? Go. Theatrical. Why? Um, I don't, um, this isn't going to be 20 words or less. <laughs> I think I've already sp- spent them all, but um, Producer's Cut has the better third act and is a more well-rounded story. Uh, theatrical Cut is the one I grew up with. It's the one I'm really nostalgic for. And I do think in certain areas it has a bit more, um, it has more energy for better or for worse. Um, so yeah, yeah, Theatrical Cut. Producer's Cut, in full acknowledgement of the fact that the Producer's Cut is probably the better version of that film i still have a soft spot for the theatrical cut what about you i think i'm gonna have to go with theatrical only because i think producer's cut is maybe a little bit less paced and a little bit unrefined it is unrefined there's less style in the producer's cut but i know that's because these mtv transitions between scenes that we're gonna talk about later on were very much like seem they seem very studio mandated, but the there is a sluggishness to that producer's cut. There is, and it's it's probably. I mean, we'll get into this in a bit. But yeah, it's probably because you know that was the cut that was essentially thrown out the door by the Weinstein's, and it was like okay, we're we're changing everything, so it wasn't even given its proper dues to explore exactly how good it could possibly be. But Leo, I mean, for our listeners out there, what film are we talking about? Well, Jim, we are talking about Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Yes, we are. I don't think it's Halloween 6, The Curse of It's just Halloween, The Curse of Michael no. Myers, right? Early TV spots were Halloween 666. Six, 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 six. But it was released, it wasn't even released as Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael just Halloween, yep. The Curse of Michael Myers. Um, and today that movie faces off against the extremely hot off the presses, uh, Scream 6, yep. which was released on the 10th of March, 2023, which was only a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, less than three months ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, one movie we've had nigh on 30 years to think about and mull over and <laughs> another one we've had, you know, three months. When was the first time you saw Halloween 6? I remember it really well. I had come in from one of those hanging out times with my friends as a teenager and I walked in right at the moment when Kim Darby gets killed by the wash line yeah because uh, i had no idea what i was watching my bro it happened to be on the television uh she pulls down the sheet and michael's there like oh halloween movie i was about to say and you knew this was a hot but you knew halloween did, at I, that time i knew halloween at that time i didn't know because this is the thing i'm old enough to not have the internet in my life and well me too yeah to well, a degree. well to a degree but you know it was not around and I knew that there were sequels, obviously, because I owned, I definitely owned two. Um, fairly confident that I owned four. I had no idea there was a six. So I was like, whoa, what is this? And I watched it. And that sequence again, which I'll talk about later on, is one of my favorites in the movie. And uh, I was yeah. like, oh, wow, there's there's more of these. Like, I've, I've, the, the world is my oyster from now on. What about you? Well, it's interesting because this movie is one of the... And I actually did a little bit of a, a a deep dive. I got on the chair and hypnotized myself and did a bit of a deep dive into my you relationship. You went into the, 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 think, the sinking place? The I went into place. the sunken place <laughs> and thought about my experiences with these movies. Halloween 6 comes really early for me. Oh. Because, and I'm not going to make a secret of this, uh, up top, 
I have a real soft spot for Halloween six. Yeah. Like it's, it's higher on my list than I think most people expect. And I was trying to unpack that. And I think the reason is because it was actually one. Of, I saw it really early. Yeah. Like, I think I saw it after I saw the first one. I may have seen it in some incarnation before I even saw the first one in full. Really? Like, I oh, remember wow. being like eight or nine Yeah. and Halloween six being on one Halloween. I just remember for me, it goes Halloween, Halloween six. And then I think the original Halloween two, because I said on a previous episode that I saw Halloween two right after the TV cut of Halloween. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I really think six came hot on the heels of the first one. And maybe even in some elements before the first one, but so many horror fans who are died in the world must have this where they yeah. can't remember oh, which one they saw first. Hundred percent. Scream came before all of them. I remember that. Yeah. I know that. But Halloween Six was really early, and I do think that's why I'm a lot kinder on it. Well, um, should I just start then describing the movie? Well, well, let's just briefly talk about Scream Six. Okay. We saw this on a double bill with Scream Five. Yeah. And up top, we have again no right for the sixth entry in any movie to be this good. I think Scream Six is fantastic. Yeah, I have a lot of little things that bug me about Scream 6. So this is going to be an interesting one because I can objectively say that Halloween 6 is not a very good movie. Um, Trying to stay snark free, but but it is, admittedly, I think even Daniel Farrens or Joe Chappelle would say that it's probably not what they intended it to be. So the theatrical cut, and let's just up top say that we are talking about the theatrical cut the whole way through this with a a few pepperings of the producer's cut. But Halloween 6 is so not great. Scream 6 is absolutely great. But Halloween 6 has such a special place in my heart. And I'm very nostalgic for Halloween 6. And obviously Scream 6 is brand new and kind of veers off the tradition of the franchise a lot. And some of that I think is great. But it's just these are two really interesting movies because I'm really nostalgic for one. And one is a series that I'm really nostalgic for with a movie that I'm kind of still working out my thoughts on. I think Halloween 6 and Resurrection suffer from coming out like one year too early. And I'll tell you why. Okay. I think Halloween 6 was coming out and Scream came out like a year later. Yeah. And had, and Scream changed everything. You know, scream for I mean, and also we should yeah. just for anyone who doesn't know this, but I, I highly doubt anyone the same studio. Yeah, exactly. Dimension. Yeah, exactly. And Scream changed everything. So I sort of think to myself, I wonder if six had come out or was in production while Scream had come out, would the Weinsteins have kind of said, Do you know what, right? We're not funneling any money out of this. They funneled money out of this production of Halloween 6 to fund, partly fund a a Hellraiser movie, which was another franchise they owned at the time. They would never have done that, I reckon, um, if Scream had come out beforehand because it would have been like, okay, there's gold in them, there are slasher hills. Yeah, but they made off like, but but, but if if they had started Halloween 6 in the incarnation that we have it, if they'd done that after Scream came out, then you run the risk of Halloween 6 coming out and making a lot of money and not being particularly great. 
but having everybody, but but making a lot of money with a movie like Halloween 6 implies that the audience is going to come back for a continuation of that story and then you don't get H2O. So in a way, they kind of won, it was a win-win for them. That's true. Halloween 6 got made and they got to make their first studio Halloween movie and made a bit of bank. Didn't it make a bit, but did all right. It, it didn't do well. No, it didn't but do well, but, but like not... So Halloween 6 comes out and then Scream comes out and then they basically make off like bandits with, yeah. with H2O. Yeah. And I, but you then, know, it's a win-win. But then with Resurrection, you know, we'll get to that movie in subsequent episodes. But yeah. a year later, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out and it's kind of like, okay, legacy sort of things are yeah, done. Yeah, that's true, yeah. And that's why the next movie after Resurrection is a remake. Five years later too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Halloween 6 comes out on October 1995. Yep. I think it opens against, I remember reading that it opened against a really, I think it might've opened against Casino. No, it might not have. Casino was November or December, but it comes out in obviously October 1995. One of the only Weinstein Halloween movies that came out in October, a bunch of them came out in August. And I think it, it, it certainly doesn't do well critically. And I don't think it does well with the, the fans. And then this is kind of the, Rob Zombie's H2 before there's an enormous rewrite of the entire the slate is wiped clean for H2O in in 1998 so uh, you know a a very very not even controversial I think most fans just do not like this movie yeah I mean a little bit of context as you said it comes out in 1995 this is the first Halloween movie that's produced by Dimension Films which is an offshoot of Miramax owned by Harvey and Bob Weinstein apparently uh, Akkad you know the rights had lapsed and Akkad went into a bidding war him on one side with the Weinsteins and uh, Carpenter on the other side with New Line and uh, I did not know that and Dimension got the bid Several writers go through several drafts. Phil Rosenberg wrote one. Uh, I remember Scott Rosenberg, his brother. I really liked that draft. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed had, that. That was the one with uh, virtual reality. Yeah, and it was evil. Halloween. Wasn't it Halloween 6? Because the origin, origin of evil. Of it, yeah. And it had a, a traveling news crew and stuff. That's right. Um, yeah. That was, a, I really enjoyed that uh, script. Yeah, and a portal in Michael Myers' grave, if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, you know, this is just, all sounded very familiar. Yeah, so... so so Daniel Farren's first time sort of uh, feature writer, but massive long-term, fan, yeah. long-time fan of Halloween's hired to write the script. Uh, Joe Chappelle comes in to direct. It seems to have been a bit of a troublesome shoot in that there was a lot of creative input because it's subject, of course, to studio mandates, studio feelings, and studio thoughts. Most of all, the ending, which apparently, yeah. according to Marianne Hagen, was filled with like teenage boys who said they hated it. A drastic rewrite slash reshoot was done without Donald Pleasance, who unfortunately had passed away uh, after principal photography and wasn't available for reshoots. And in that vein, you know, when you you got you got to work with what you got. Unfortunately, yeah. and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The fact that they have anything sort of resembling a cohesive film without one of the, without the main star is pretty incredible so hats off i mean yeah and i do think the, the thing is i think the movie does make sense i yeah. just as we'll uh, and we're, we're about to get into it so we'll talk about these things as they come up the problem is i think daniel farren's had such an unenviable i mm. have to say i mean he deserves so much credit for at least trying to wrap all this up 
the man in black stuff that, that, you know, he cared more about it than the people who made five did understanding Michael's evil. I really admire the at bat he got to try and tidy it all up. I just think there's so many people have given him a bad steer in the previous movies that there's no way it would never have been preposterous. You're so right. I mean, we, we've talked about this before that sequels are have to inherit the previous installments and he inherited a lot. You yeah. Know, and I really stuff. do think he did a, he did a really good. Yeah. I do I, think he did a really good job on, on that script. All things considered. Yeah. And reading his original script, he had, I mean, I'll get into it later on, but he definitely had more concrete ideas about the motivation of the cult and so forth. The kind of just went by the wayside. Unfortunately right. with, uh, editing rewrites that weren't, is doing oh so he didn't he wasn't the writer the only writer the whole way through i think it was there were definitely ghost writers interesting in, okay in there okay um so let's get let's get stuck in then yeah. let's talk so about halloween six so we're gonna uh we pick up in 1995 and i mean literally from second three or four you get the sense this is a different stylistic movie yeah. than any of the other ones. You've got this extremely loud, fast cut montage. You and the know, warped of, imagery. Yeah. And it's almost like an, it's an, it looks like an anamorphic image that hasn't been de-squeezed. Yes, exactly. It was exactly. a very weird opening. Very, very, very. Um, But I mean, it's directed by Joe Chappelle. Yeah. Let's talk about him because we're, we're fans. Uh, we're, yeah. Phant Phantoms. Love. I phantoms. love phantoms, but also, I mean, the man's career in television. Yes. The wire yeah. and all. I mean, like, there's really nothing else that needs said. If you say, I think there are certain benchmark pieces of art in TV or film or whatever where it's like, yeah, he made this and he made this and he made this. But he worked on the wire. So that yeah. kind of, and he directed on the wire. So that's kind of where it all, you don't really need to say anything else. I mean, totally. he worked on the wire. This is a talented guy. And even in this movie, you see a really assured directorial hand. Yeah. And, and there are some mixed reports about him. I don't know what he was like, but I he seems in some behind the scenes footage to be very nice. Yeah, I, th uh, I don't some think Some of the cast was... speak highly of him. I, uh, Marianne be, to, Hagen was yeah, not particularly to, complimentary in one of the interviews to, about him. To be blunt about it, you know, the, the assumption is that he had no one, he, had, he didn't care about he didn't like the Halloween movies. He it wasn't his lifelong dream, like Farns was, to write a to direct a Halloween movie. He was there because apparently, according to Marianne Hagen, he wanted a, a two picture deal with Miramax, and this was the way to to do it. Nonetheless, I think it's a very assuredly directed film. He doesn't phone. Um, he, I don't think he's phoning no, anything not in at here. All. We open the movie anyway with the character of Jamie, who's being wheeled down a corridor, and photographically, it's atmospheric as hell you have yeah. to admit and interestingly enough uh, i discovered photographed by a guy called billy dixon who started off as assistant camera on hills of eyes part two with Wes oh wow okay yeah, so that's cool. yet another little uh, connection yeah to, that's really cool to wes which is always great so now i mean right off the bat this isn't daniel harris yes this is jc brandy no now we get into controversy we do, we do. And um, in in my notes, I, I did have a question about the Danielle Harris of it all, because the, obviously the truth of the matter is that she was a, what is called in the industry, a skill plus 10 yeah. character because she died in the first act. And after everything that she'd done in the last two movies and her involvement in the franchise, everybody thought that 
she thought, and I think a lot of people thought that she deserved a better deal. And I think Malik Akkad has conceded as such. So she left yeah. negotiations that didn't come into the movie. Now, I want to ask you a question, Jim. Go. Uh, we're going to get to it in a minute. But Jimmy, Jimmy dies in the movie very early on and dies pretty brutally. Do you think that pissed a lot of fans off? But do you think it would have pissed them off even more if it was Danielle Harris? Do you not think it's alleviated by the fact that it's JC Brandy, who's very good, but not Danielle Harris? I would totally agree. And But the other thing as well to, to keep in mind is that in the original script and in the producer's cut, of course, Jamie doesn't die the way she does in the theatrical cut. She has a little bit more to do and dies in the hospital in the hospital bed. Yeah, not much but more to not do. Not much more to do. More time on screen, but not... In a bed. Yeah, in a bed. In a coma. I do think that had it have been Daniel Harris, I won't, I think it would have been much more of a gut punch because, you know, we literally watched Daniel Harris grow up in four and five. She was, you know, 12 year, 11 year old, uh, you know, 12 year old girl. And you know, she'd done some great movies in between. She'd done uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Ever uh, Last Boy Scout, yeah. which I adore. She done a really cool episode of Erie, Indiana. Oh, okay. Show, which I really, really like. And I think to see her killed so ineffectually, yeah. I guess, in terms of story, would have been much more of a gut punch. Well, here's the thing. I don't know that it is ineffectual. Fans don't like it. But that first act of the movie is Jamie. I mean, yeah. that first act of the movie is Jamie bringing all of these disparate characters together you have Wynn and Loomis hearing her on the radio you have Tommy Doyle hearing her in the house it's it's kind of her movie for that first 20 minutes it is but she I think the character of Jamie definitely deserved in the same way that Rachel in Halloween 5 we talked about this the previous week Halloween you know, Rachel probably deserved a little bit more who gets the bigger disservice oh good question uh, Rachel there's no question Rachel, it's Rachel gotta be gotta be at least at least Jamie has some sort of like final fuck you to michael which is oh yeah he doesn't get the baby, baby. yeah exactly yeah. And, she, yeah, yeah. and she does outsmart but anyway so jimmy is uh given birth we see the man in black again who of course will have a much uh bigger role in this uh with the event of the cult of the thorn jimmy has the baby it's taken away from her but then uh manages to escape this Uns, you know, it's not, it's not said where this location is. We will discover where it is uh, later on. But Jimmy escapes with the aid of uh, a midwife who is then killed by a very conveniently placed sort of coat hanger. On mm -hmm. a, the only one. Yeah, the only one on a, in a massive, yeah. long, derelict, uh, you know, yeah. steam-ridden hall. There was anyway. probably just one fussy fucker in the opposite exactly. office who just, insisted he get a coat hanger. Who just didn't like that. Yeah, you think. But while he kills her, we get our first glimpse of new Michael, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because okay, it's a, definitely a new mask, definitely an improvement from five. I think we can yeah. definitely yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, this is I would say next to the 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 three movies we just got are are I'm not counting because the mask is so perfect. I think yeah. Um, and the first one and the second one, this is the best mask after one and two. Yeah, I mean it is, yeah. and I think it's I don't think it gets better in seven or eight. I don't. I think it's. This is the best sequel mask after the second one. 
it's really uh, it's a really good mask. I have a soft spot for H two, but we'll get there. But but what mask? Which of the nineteen masks do you <laughs> like in H two? Uh, I like the Stan Winston one. I think it has a little too much eyes, but apart from that, I like it. I'm just letting the silence yeah. speak for itself. Anyway. I like the CGI mask. Anyway. Uh, George so, P. Wilbur. Yes, George P. Wilbur is back, apparently, having been personally asked by Mustafa Akkad. Yeah. Um, probably just trying to, you know, capitalize on the success of 4 yet again. You know, uh, yeah. the success of 4, why not have it again? But the startling difference is overalls. Yeah, and I mean, he's probably a little bit older by this stage. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. This is this is very very sketchy territory here. But maybe a little bit too old to be doing the kinds of things that Michael needs to do in this movie. I don't love the. I don't enjoy the jokes about how Michael's doer in this one though. No, I, I think they're shitty and and silly and needless and and it's not exactly jarring to be honest with you. I have never had a problem with George Wilbur's performance in this one. People think it's it's a weird like talking point for people, George Wilbur in this, but no, I think he's good in it. I also only realized on rewatching this movie, um, Michael's like, you don't see him that often. No, not he's, at all. Joe Chappelle, I don't know whether it was an accident or not because of the litany of cuts, but like kind of close to the first one in terms of he's yeah. there and he's implied, but you don't see him that much. Yeah. Or he's well, he's lit in such a way that he's always concealed and whatever. Yeah. Um, so that even more so makes me wonder I, I I think there's a lot of needless discourse around George P. Wilburn in, in this movie I think he's I think he's a good Michael in this one just yeah. like he was a good Michael in 4 but you have to the overalls are too grey you have to admit well where did he get them from well I mean who knows who were to get his new mask from that's what I mean the, you like know. you know it, we're not necessarily meant to believe they're the same overalls from 5 no but I just kind of think you know in in aesthetic terms it's a little jarring to see them so for, for again, white. Again, I'm not as much of a purist. I, I, it didn't jar me that much. But if Ghostface showed up in a white robe, yeah. I guess I'd have similar thoughts, you know? <laughs> it would definitely be a clan member. Um, it would be, co be a cool visual, though. Mm -hmm. Like, they could do a lot of cool things with that. Like a, uh, a, a, a you know, grey robe. Radio sounds, take note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, another quick question here. You know, Michael has shown up, he's killed this kind midwife and is now chasing Jamie, who manages to get away uh, in a truck driver's uh, pickup truck, who is then killed as well. The score. Yeah. It's very 90s. I actually think it's very, um, I think it's a little 80s. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's, very, it's it's Seattle nineties. Yes, you know it's yeah. very like grungy. Yeah, and which which again is pretty exclusive to the theatrical cut and the producers cut. It's Alan Harworth is back, total MVP guys. Guy yeah, is a legend. Yeah, but in the theatrical cut, it's got a really good version. It's a of lot the more, theme yeah. and very atmospheric in the way that Alan Harworth does. And apparently, Joe Chappelle had made the specific request that he should play music that was more akin to his collaborations with Carmen really Prince of Darkness and Christine and things like that. Uh, and I think he did a very good job in the producer's cut. I don't particularly enjoy the guitar sort of sound. In yeah, it's not, it, no, it's not good. In the theatrical cut, it doesn't work for me. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't grate me that much, but it doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's a weird and interestingly comparatively later on with Scream 6, you do get a bit of a, you get a musical reinvention in Scream 6. That's quite interesting. You get like new themes and new character, uh, motifs and stuff. Um, and that does work. Yeah. 
Whereas this one adopts it to try and be more hip rather than letting it evolve naturally with the story and the characters. And I do think it's, it's a, it's maybe, maybe it's the primest quickest example you can point to of like, here's a studio's version of the movie. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's big and grand, but the, the Halloween theme relies on simplicity and we're going to talk about this again, obviously with H2O because of the music controversy in that. It's, it seems a little bit, you know, oh, audiences were like that. It's like, well, you know, we did. We loved yeah. it in 1978. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we loved it, it, its simplicity, but. Well, it's a lack of social media and lack of online forums, like to to the degree that they had later on in the 90s and now where you, you are assuming what the audience is thinking. And I think it led to a lot of silly decisions. Whereas now it's like, you'll pretty much know yeah. right away what's a good idea and what isn't, Very you true. know. Uh, so we leave Jamie uh, momentarily as she escapes. We're back to the Myers house. Uh, yeah. Which is actually great. It, it, it does a good job of looking looking like the Myers house. And aesthetically, you know, this was the only film apparently it was filmed in actual autumn. And it's autumn in Salt Lake City. So, it, oh. so it, it does aesthetically look very much like Halloween, which is wonderful. We meet uh, Danny and his mom, Cara, who are now living in the Myers house. Danny seems to be having dreams of the man in black. And Kara is his mum trying to protect him, uh, played by Marianne Hagen. Uh, again, just very briefly, an interesting choice of, as a final girl, I think. She's know. so, I just think she's really good in this. Yeah. I think she's really, really good. I think her face just immediately invites empathy for me yeah. every time I watch this movie. Second Friends alum to appear in this movie. I bet you didn't know that. Is she in? She is one of Rachel's friends who shows up, I think, in season two with a group of her other friends. And they are very, they're still very upmarket and Ah. they are kind of a little bit, they're not particularly supportive of Rachel's new life. Um, But yeah, and I didn't figure that out until last year, but there you go. Two friends alumni in this movie. But how is the the age and technology so like back and forth now when it was so well used in 1995 to de-age Kurt Russell to be that kid. <laughs> like, they did it so perfectly in five, 20, like nearly 30 years ago. How can they not get it right still? Uh, who knows? Because that kid's Kurt Russell. You can't convince me Maybe otherwise. It's Wyatt Russell. I looked him up on IMDb. I don't know if he did much after Halloween 5. And you know why? Because he's not a real kid. He's Kurt Russell. Mm. He's you're Kurt saying, Russell. You're saying this was like... James Cameron maybe trying Avatar out a few years early. Just to, well, yeah. I mean, maybe that's why it took so long to get the movie released. <laughs> and then when that Hellraiser money went out, yeah, fuck. that was it. it was but um, no, Marianne Hagen, great, really empathetic. And yeah. I really, I just feel like the minute you meet her, you know what she's lived. Yeah. It, she does, like, I would, I'm going to say it, post Jamie Lee Curtis, probably, and I, I love Ellie Cornell. She's great. Daniel Harris gives an amazing performance. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of plot and baggage around those characters from the get-go when we meet them. I immediately just take one look at the way Marianne Hagen plays that character. Yeah. And I feel like she's been through some stuff. Yeah. More than any of the characters since Jimmy Lee Curtis. Yeah. And I would agree. And I think that what I quite like about this as well is that for the last three Halloween movies, the final girls have all been very typically different. You, know, you had the yeah the good girl in Rachel. You had the sort of louder bad girl in Tina, and now you have like a young single mother yeah. trying to. It's a great character. 
to have it's, as a final girl and certainly goes against conventions, especially as you say, six movies in. And I also like, it's a little bit adjacent to your point, but I love the atmosphere in that first act. I love the way the geography is set up. Like there's a real coziness to that first act. Yeah. There's Tommy across the street listening to the radio. The radio's playing as she gets ready. We're about to meet Dr. Loomis in his office. He's, there's a real like, yeah. I don't know, there's an atmosphere to that first act that's really there is like its own version of what the first movie yeah does there is and speaking of the aging technology we meet paul stephen rudd paul stephen rudd he doesn't <laughs> as, need the as he's credited who literally has not he aged is from, yeah exactly yeah. who has not aged from this movie uh and again just a little incidental horror movies have a really good way of getting future stars in you know what i mean like you think about yeah. you think about jennifer Anson, you think about paul Rudd, you think about jamie Lee curtis you know all these guys come back george clooney <laughs> tom hanks you know they all come back to is it because the movies make money and that makes them bankable probably is there actually quite a solid black and white on paper reason why horror movie stars become star stars Probably. I don't think it's entirely that, but maybe there's maybe. a part of it that's that. Maybe. But um, yeah, Paul Rudd, really, really fun in this. Yeah. Um, He's back as uh, Tommy Doyle. I love it, uh, how seriously he takes that. Yes. Very he, much he's so. happy to be here. Yeah. And he's working really hard. Yeah, he really is. And he, he plays it. He's kind of a, he's kind of 50% Michael in this movie. He's stoic and direct and yeah you know subtle and so forth and then but also he's the good guy so he's also very emotional it's very interesting performance uh but he's back as tommy doyle who lives across the street from the mars house uh and then we hook up with uh dr loomis who's now older retired um according to the producers cut had skin grafts done which is hence why he doesn't have any visible scars uh -huh. on his face and terence Wynn who uh, was a very incidental throwaway <laughs> yeah. character from the first movie. Uh, but we'll get to him. I always dug that. I always thought that was cool. Yeah. When Mitchell Ryan shows up, you know he's about to be a villain. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw this movie probably with, you know, a bit more a bit more compass mentis when I was like maybe nine. And I'd already seen Lethal Weapon. And I was like, well, he's the bad, <laughs> he's the bad guy then. He's not going to be good in this movie. Um, apparently, initially, it was meant to be Christopher Lee. Oh, that's all. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. I just so, think Christopher Lee's good. But anyway. Donald Pleasance, Loomis, yeah. is his least crazy in this oh, one. Oh, yeah. And you know why? Because he's settled the fuck down. Yeah. He's got his lovely little oak office. He's clacking away on his typewriter. And he's just chilling. He seems and very... like in life. He seems very nostalgic in this movie. And enjoying himself a little bit too much, considering that he actually never... They, they never actually find Michael. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes you got to get on with your life. Yeah, exactly. You just got to write a book about it, which um, is what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy drives um, to Haddonfield. Geographically unrealistic, but we'll let it go. Uh, yeah, I would let that go. That yeah. doesn't bother me. Yeah. Uh, and Haddonfield, which, by the way, incidentally, seems to have like eternal thunderstorms. In this love movie. it love it's me a bit of atmosphere. like james will atmosphere it's very atmospheric but my god those people like you know the bus are you talking about the bus depot I'm, I'm talking about the entire movie every night scene in this here has lightning yeah but it's halloween yeah, yeah. But, you know. it's halloween in yeah. midwest yeah okay fine we'll let it go we get the sense through the background radio broadcast that haddonfield has banned halloween so this is the first time they're celebrating it since night the events of halloween 5 in 1989 Jamie's made it to a bus station. She tries to phone the police. Can't get through, so she puts a sort of 
call into the radio station to call for help from Dr. Loomis, who hears it with Wynne, as does Tommy. Michael shows up and Jamie flees, but unfortunately doesn't make it very far. He's killed pretty brutally on some yeah. sort of farming equipment. Uh, it was a nasty way to go. A gratuitous reshoot, do you think? It was definitely a gratuitous, it was definitely a reshoot. I don't know if it was gratuitous. I actually quite, I think it's very tragic. Yeah. I think it's very, because she kind of reaches out for help. And Michael has, one of the great things about the shape with Michael is that there are moments where it looks like the the shape goes away and he remembers humanity. And I think this is one of them because he reaches his hands out and then he stops and he pushes her on further. And it just seems so psychologically interesting. He does it he does it in part two, you know, when Laurie calls him Michael and he kind of drops his head, he drops the knife down yeah. and tilts his yeah. head. You know, I love moments like that. And I think that there's it just makes it gives this sort of nameless faceless killer a little bit more substance yeah. than other movies. And it's it's going to come up again in H2O in a really It sure is. And again, we talked about this. Uh, could be a waste of a legacy character. Personally, I don't really know what else she could have done. Uh, Jamie? Yeah, serving in the story. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... The I don't know of any. I mean, you could hypothesize, you know, until the cows come home about how you could have integrated her into a story. But like, there's so much mythology to wrap up here. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you could do it. Yeah, I don't know how you could do it. I mean, I'm sure you could in a different. It, you could always. It's a choose. These movies are choose your own adventure movies. Yeah. I would have assumed that. It, I would have assumed that it would have taken like a really good page one rewrite to 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 make her. An essential part of the story. Well, here's a question. As good as that twist at the end of four is, yeah. is it ultimately the Laurie Strode is Michael's sister? Because it renders five and six really tricky. Yeah. Because the reason that she's affected is because she touches his hand and then the cult of Thorn is obviously trying to seize, you know, the evil that exists within these people. If they had just... I mean, the thing is, probably not, because again, in another in, in Scream 6, they carry on the legacy of someone who is worried that they've inherited evil in a way that's just more interesting. Yeah. So so maybe not, but I do think there's, you know, you got two movies after four end twist that still can't stick the landing yeah, off true. the back of that. It's true. So maybe that, as cool as it is in the minute, in the moment, and as horrifying as it is, as great an ending as it is, it's a party trick for the that that kind of comes to the detriment of everything that's coming next. Yeah. But would you trade it? I don't think so. No, I, I, I it I, is I, really creepy. Yeah. It's really, I think a, it's for a, a self-contained movie, it really works. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great scene in the barn. There's yeah. There's some really good photography in there. But, uh, so Jamie's killed, Michael, the baby's missing, uh, we cut then to the next day and we're back at the Myers house where we meet the Strode family, not to be confused with uh, Laurie Strode. It's Laurie Strode's uncle, evidently, John. Yes. Uh, nice little reference to John Carpenter, as is the mum, who's named Deborah. Uh, a great a great reference to the fog in this scene as well. Oh, uh, I did. Hang on. Did I make a note of it? Oh, yeah. Stomach pounder. Stomach pounder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. John Strode's obviously this it's very troubled family. John Strode is this sort of abusive father. And Danny, at one point, wields a knife to him. He's evidently being set up as being right on the edge of being sort of six years old. So he's kind of, he's blonde, he's blue-eyed. He's 
on the cusp of being the new Michael we're supposed to uh, believe. We learn later that John's bought Meyer's house because uh, no one else would. Yeah. And that is a, it's, that's an interesting sort of thing. I think, I think that, that, that that's pretty cool. You know, like like yeah. somebody's finally occupying the Myers house out of sheer necessity. And the connection to the Strode yeah. legacy is actually done really interestingly. Exactly. And a great, sorry to go backwards as well too, but I just realized I missed it. Um, Great suspense scene at the bus station. I think, you know, Michael coming down the stairs with the rain on the wall sort of behind him. Great photography. I, go back to Billy Dixon again. my first thought watching that sequence and how well crafted it was and how atmospheric it was, was... This is so good that it's distracting me from realizing that, like, and I'm not being funny here, this is a franchise that has fully come off its hinges. Yeah. I mean, that baby stays overnight in a bus depot with no one going near it until the next day. And do not try and say if that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, no. I you can't. looked like you were about to justify it. No, no, no. I was going to say maybe it's a, a, a very heavy sleeper, but, <laughs> you know, it's a baby. I mean... <laughs> That bus depot sequence and the baby in the in the in the bathroom, that's the first like, oh fuck, this is this has lost the thread completely. But it's very well made yeah. and it's very cool looking. It is, and the performances are selling me on it. There's a lot of uh, sugar yeah. in this cake to detract from the fact that there's no flavor at the center that's a good you know yeah so tommy has sort of discovered where jamie was he goes to the bus station finds the baby takes it to the hospital encounters uh by chance dr loomis who then goes to the myers house aka the strode house to sort of warn deborah strode that michael will be coming back and of course he does with the aforementioned scene uh, where he kills Kim Darby by the clothesline, which I think is another great sequence. It's a highlight of the movie for me. Yeah. Um, I, I, j the other thing that I will say, just in that in that portion of the movie, when we meet Kara and her friends, yeah, well, Tim and Tim's um, Tim's girlfriend, Beth, Beth, they are a really likable group of people. Yeah. yeah. And I was, I think it was because it was hot off the heels of Halloween 5. Like, I like the teens in that movie. Yeah. And again, that's another good thing Daniel Farrance does. He weaves a little bit of what the first movie had in there too. He kind of gets a little bit of everything. Because yeah. Kara and her friends remind me of Laurie and, and Linda and Annie. And it's like... Yeah. Because there is that sort of line where Kara, you know, Beth says you're going to get lost in, in that thing, which is referring to the amount of books that she has and stuff, you know, it's kind of a good throwback. Beth is in one the, of my favorite, yeah. like, friends of the leads in the entire franchise. Did you ever hear about the story, the story, the Edgar Wright story about her? No. She became a, uh, she doesn't act anymore. Okay. She, she became a uh, interior designer. Oh, cool. Oh, and, I did hear yeah. this. Didn't she design his house? Yeah, she, and he, when he found out who she was, he organized a screening. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, which is pretty cool. Um, um So... Deborah has been killed and Kara comes home to find her son Danny with Tommy who brings him to his home. And then now we get into the sort of maybe the overcomplicated part of the movie, which is mm -hmm. Tommy explaining what this strange symbol means that was on Michael's wrist yeah. in five. 
which is that it's a it's a rune called Thorn that appears as constellation of stars on Halloween night. And it was supposed to be a, an entity of evil that would bring sickness and kill people. And whenever the stars appear, that's when Michael appears. So let's get into this as an explanation for Michael. Go. My only, my note, my literal note here is the constellation stuff is fucking mental. <laughs> and I've written underneath, couldn't Michael have just been a leader that they all worshipped within the cult? without the need for the astronomy stuff well you see this is the thing this this is kind of what i mean i'm i'm gonna jump ahead i'm just gonna go through the entire film here to the i i watched in preparation for this i watched the theatrical cut and i watched the producer's cut i still and i read the original draft of the script i still don't know what the cult motivation is um so my gauge and we are going ahead a little bit i understand but my gauge of it is they want to harvest evil in a human body and the, the, okay, you're right. Cause it's fucking, <laughs> I kind of feel like it's one of those things though, that once you feel you get a grasp on it, something else happens and you go, no, I, I, that doesn't make any sense now. I have to say it really, really, really frustrates me yeah. because it's so ludicrous. And when something is so willfully ludicrous, it alienates me. And I know that this is a lot of studio mandated shit. I know that this is, that it probably does check out. But what does Randy say? If it gets too complicated, you lose your target audience. Yeah. They are trying to, they're trying to genetically create pure evil in a human form so that they can then transcend their own humanity by inheriting the evil. Does it say that? No, but it's, <laughs> it, like, what the fuck else do they have to well, gain? But you see, this is the thing. There's a certain implication that what it is, is they're trying, that, that they can control Michael. They, Michael kind of does their bidding, so to speak. Okay. And then you're kind of going, okay, so why is your bidding for him to kill his entire family? I don't understand. And then... He, they don't really control bloodlines him. in there yeah. too, though. And, and they don't really control them because... He ends up massacring them later on in the movie. So it's not why does he do that? So this is my question. Why does he turn on them? Because turning on them and killing them all would imply that he knows what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. But why would he give? Why? Why? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, I I genuinely don't. I mean, because and this, this is again, this is the um the problem of the producers cut versus the theatrical cut. In that the producer's cut seems to... Oh, it makes more it, sense. Yeah, it, it, it dwells on the cultish sort of thing. The, the implication is that Michael does the bidding of win and now it's time for the evil to pass on to another person. So they they want Michael to kill the baby Stephen so that his mission is complete which will, and which will then go into Danny and Danny will be sort of the new Michael Myers. Problem is... If that's the case, why do they bother having the baby in the first place? Why did they keep Jamie alive for six years, you know, when Michael could have killed her? There's also the implication that Michael is the father of the baby as a result of like... Well, that's very clear in the producer's cut. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, which is... It's, uh, to me, the best explanation for this 
is somebody had almost cooked idea. No, they didn't. No, no, had had a had a had an idea. Not saying it was a, not saying it was explained fully. I'm saying it was an idea that then went through the hands of an awful lot of people who did not know what that idea was. And you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen making different meals. And what you don't get is souffle. What you get is an amalgamation of breakfast, lunch, It's like when your five-year-old gets like a, a an easy oven or whatever. Yeah. And shows you what they made. Yeah. And it's like fucking Play-Doh and cheese. Yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to sound snarky, but it actually bothers me that this is so... Because I actually weirdly feel like when you get to the third act of a movie and it's been tacked on and it hasn't been thought out yes. and it doesn't make sense with the movie that's come before it and they haven't even tried to make it make sense, it's actually very dishonest. Yeah, and I think this it's is... It's actually the, a dishonest thing to do. And I think this is the main... You know, because horror series throughout history have taken massive left turns. You know what I mean? You know, all of a sudden, say, in Friday the 13th, part six, Jason's brought back to life by a bolt of lightning... Yeah, but at least that makes sense. But but they give you you the ingredients for it to make sense. Exactly, and it makes sense in the restrict in the actual entity of that movie. Yeah, this one doesn't make any sense, and therefore I think it's the actual main. I think it's the the main problem as to why the movie is so hated on by fans. Because if it had been a logical explanation in the way, but Halloween ends is a massive left turn, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, hold on, what? Michael can see evil in people's eyes and now has a teammate but in that movie yeah works yeah so well and and I, I again i love the movie here for the atmosphere the nostalgia the performances and the the set pieces a lot uh, the plot of it is so utterly insane yeah um and just uh, insane but also just you know i, I have no problem with being insane but like not thought out insane. It's just unforgivable. So Donald and Tommy team up. Yeah. Well, Loomis and Tommy team up. Yeah. That's a, I really like that duo. And I would have been really interested and happy to see Tommy assume the Laurie role for any future sequels. Yeah, for sure. Again, that weren't necessarily as drowning in, in, in mythology and having to tidy things up. Um, I have a really, dumb it's not dumb because i'm genuinely curious to hear your thoughts on it but it does run the risk of sounding offensive to donald pleasant which i'm not trying to be at all but he was always game for these movies yeah do you think he knew that the dead jamie was supposed to be daniel harris's character (laughs) (laughs) or did he just not give a shit because i'm wondering why loomis doesn't seem to cur that jamie has died in this movie like he does, but he also brushes it off and gets on with the movie. But again, this comes down to the differences between the cuts because he does have a yeah. sort of remorseful scene in, in the producer's cut. That's so true. And apparently, don't know if this is true, but apparently Joe Chappelle thought he was born as a character, so cut out most oh, of the scenes. Oh, he's not boring. He's not boring. Agreed. And I think that he might be a little bit limp in this movie yeah. but he's not boring yeah i agree and i think that it's it's very sad because the I character not donald pleasant no. the character's maybe not particularly well written in this one yeah and I, I i think as well you know to be practical about it all donald pleasant was in ill health at the time <laughs> yes but my 
God, he gives a good performance. That scene well, in in the kitchen with Kim Darby when he's talking about you know this see, yeah. thing, this force inside him. It's Shakespearean. So yeah, good. and it, it's not even that he's badly written. It's I think he might be written to be at a place in his life where you know what it's like. And this sounds a little silly. It's a little bit like Bruce Wayne and Batman and Robin. You know, one of the most interesting criticisms I've heard about that movie is that Bruce doesn't seem tortured in it. Yeah. He's kind of at peace with life and at peace with himself. And George Clooney plays him as very kind of happy-go-lucky. Yeah. Loomis is a little bit more at peace with things in this one. Yeah, I would agree. But he doesn't get peace as a character. It's not like Lorian ends. Yeah. And I feel like that jars because the character at the start seems to be a little bit a, a little bit resigned yeah. to what has happened and what is happening but at the end of the movie he's far from that so it's just again all the little things that end up compromised when there's so many different cooks in the kitchen and so many different cuts beyond just the plot stuff but the consistency of character stuff yeah it's why you shouldn't fuck with movies i agree i agree totally. i agree totally and speaking of uh of fucking with movies we then get a scene when john returns home and is electrocuted and his head blows up, which again, uh, you know, the head blowing up was never part of the original shoot. It was a special effect that was done later. So we're then going to go across oh. town to Barry Sims. This is the most 90s element. Of the yes. Movie. Who apparently was originally supposed to be played by Hard Stern. Stern. Yeah. Come on, you know, can you get any more 90s than that? Uh, and here's the thing. I don't understand his purpose. <laughs> I was, so this was the first thing I thought of last night. Because I was watching that sequence we're, we're talking about, where we have the the back talk live episode in Haddonfield. And I remember thinking, oh, he he dies at the end of this scene. So what exactly was the... I think he's there for exposition in the first act. Yeah. And they bring him in as a death in the... Th now, there are certain things that motivate plot things, like when Tommy discovers his body, it then propels yeah. them to um, contact, back. you know, Kara and, and, and all. It... it, it it is the catalyst for many things that lead yeah. into the third act. And it's act. the same with Beth and uh, Beth Tim and go Tim back to the house so, as a result. But that's just a little bit of a shoehorned. Yeah, uh, that's a like that's shoehorning a shock jock in at a time when shock jocks were also kind of they certainly weren't new. Yeah, they weren't of the mo. I mean, Oliver Stone made talk radio an idiot, you know, and that's about that phenomenon. So you're going seven years later, and they're trying to make it hip by having a shock jock. Yeah. But he um, suggests that they move this broadcast back to the Myers house, which propels Beth and Tim to go back where, whereupon they make the cardinal sin and have sex. How beautiful therefore... is the lighting in the scene, sorry, by the way, where they're downstairs? I thought that was oh, really yeah. clever. It's it's very, as you, you, you quoted it, you said it earlier on, too, very James Whale. Uh, very like really, James Whale. Really harsh. It's lighting, very good. It's very good. Um, I also think as well when Tim gets killed, it's a particularly brutal death, and I, I oh I, yeah, and it's, a, it's a hats off to the performer because I don't think it's the blood that does it; it's the sort of convulsion that the actor who plays Tim is doing. And hats off, I think it's a really yeah ter terrifying kill. And I like Tim. Yeah, Tim is kind of a character, and there's a character in Scream Six who's a little similar, where it's written to be kind of one thing yeah and the actor just has a certain there's just a certain like niceness to them where you're like oh you seem like a nice person yeah, exactly. i'm interested in 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 your journey yeah so i really liked him and it yeah. kind of sucked for me when he when he died yeah totally um, um but the, uh beth is then also killed and danny 
who's been across the street in Tommy's house is kind of compelled to go across the street. Uh, good scene. The telescope sequence yeah. is great. Yeah. Is good that scene. the scene you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kara sees Beth be killed through yeah. the telescope. See, looks down and sees Danny entering the house has to go over to rescue the, him. The double whammy of that and the rain and red sequence. Yeah. That, they're two really good sequences. Yeah. Like tacked one tacked basically beside each other. Yeah. Definitely. And again, atmosphere and sequences in this movie are really good. Absolutely. And it's good suspenseful stuff in the house when Kara is looking for Danny. It doesn't, it doesn't even seem to be like a chase scene because he's just very slowly, methodically relentless. He's like lava. He's just coming after them. Yeah. And he chases them back across the street to the blanket ship house whereupon shit gets real and we discover that the man in black was in fact Dr. Wynn this whole time. Again, we've already talked about it, so there's no point in going into it again, but his motivations uh, are very unclear. And He wants to make an evil superhuman. He wants to make evil. He thinks that he can genetically grow evil. That is what it is. Yeah. No, yeah. he thinks he can yeah. genetically grow evil in a human body, and he wants the baby to do it because it's a direct descent of the No, he, but he wants the baby to die. He wants Danny to be the killer. By killing the baby. He wants Michael to kill the baby so his curse ends. And he wants Danny to kill Kara. So that his curse, so begins. His curse begins. But why are there all those um, fetuses in have, the lab at the end? I have no idea. No, but I do think he's trying to no, genetically I, I, create. I think you're right. I think you're right. The, the problem is it's just that it doesn't make. It's, no. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, no, let's, can I just really quickly ask sure. you about Mrs. Blankenship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how could she have been babysitting Michael? Well, again, th this is interesting because this kind of comes, it, there's a reference, not to Mrs. Blankenship, but there's a reference to, this is clearly a fan movie as well. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of throwbacks in this to the novelization of Halloween. Okay. Uh, including the fact that Michael was being watched by... A neighbor across the street and including the fact that michael heard a voice in his head so you know dario farns is definitely taking this from okay. the uh from the novelization the problem with mrs blankenship is that i can't work out you know she's described as being deaf but then isn't yes and you're sort of oh is that her is that dropping the willful character? deception yeah yeah who knows cara when she comes in and Mrs. Blankenship's holding the baby. That's so good. And her says, reaction yeah, is yeah. horrifying. Oh, that is so Marianne Hagen's reaction there genuinely creeps me out. But here's the thing. She's so good. And but here's the thing, and I totally agree with them. Daniel Farren says that the moment Kara dives out the window, that's when the movie takes a dive. Yes. Diving out the window is a is a bit extreme. Yeah. When there's a baby there to be saved. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. And it is the, it's a ridiculous the, excuse for a big stunt. It is. But the thing is also as well, this is when the movie takes a dive in terms of quality because this is when the war between the Akkads and the Weinsteins really comes to a head because mm -hmm. it's all about this ending, which again, you're trying to sort of piece together from footage that's already shot of a principal actor who's now dead with rewrites studio mandates it's so much so many plates are moving in this particular scene. yeah it's pretty intense so then we're, so after Kara tries to escape and jumps out the window 
we're, we go back to where it's revealed all along a Smith's Grove sanitarium, which again, nice little throwback to the first movie. Um, we've already talked about the cult, uh, but Michael slaughters uh, them all. In a lab. In a lab. Who are they getting really, ready to um, operate on there? It doesn't, I assume it's the baby. I don't know. Oh. Because it has to be the baby because the baby's in the next room. Okay. They're ready to go with the baby. Now, here's the thing. Um, this isn't like, this isn't like we've half-assed this episode. We've yeah. seen this movie hundreds oh, yeah. of times. And we, I don't fucking know. Oh, no, not at all. And you might notice here as well that uh, you've got, you've got a very different Michael Myers because uh, he's played by... Oh, he's uh, played by a different actor, Yeah, right? Michael Lerner. Okay. Uh, so he's a wee bit taller, a wee bit leaner. The the kill and the, the kills, I should say, in the lab are, like, just indicative of the edit and the style of this movie. It's just, like, flashy and quick and epilepsy-inducing. <laughs> like, it's just utter insanity. Um, I also noticed a little thing here, which brought me back to a little anecdote uh, about us um if you look very closely My- michael learner's chasing his father fred learner down the tunnel uh wow and, which is interesting and if you look ever so slightly in the background um michael myers the michael learner fan michael myers is it getting a little too far away so he kind of breaks into a very <laughs> oh, slight yeah that's right he, probably, he kind of breaks into a very slight job and this reminded me when we were filming your feature debut braxton <laughs> right. and this bothers me to this day is i hate this i hate this so much every time i watch that movie uh-huh there's a scene when i'm che- i'm playing the killer and i'm walking at a very oh is this vicky pe- yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah uh i'm walking out there at a very robust pace and at one point i noticed i was getting a little too far away and the hood had fallen down over my face <laughs> so in the background you can see me kind of like take a few quicker <laughs> steps than usual and pull the hood back <laughs> really it, it bothers me so I'm- much astounded that i missed that oh. i've seen that movie more times than i could probably count and i have never noticed that it bothers wow. me so much uh so then we get into our final confrontation uh in some as you say some sort of genetic slab sure where tommy injects michael with some sort of it's described on wikipedia as a corrosive liquid I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a better job than most people yeah. have done. Yeah. That's well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then beats him with a bat. I love the edit in there. I know it's very 90s, very MTV. I love the edit in there, yeah. though. No problem with that. Uh, but the thing is, it's very anticlimactic. And I think that's kind of what... There's a lot of this movie that you could describe as anticlimactic. It's like build up, build up, build up. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I have never, I actually have never looked at it as that build up, build up, build up done. I've looked at it as it's just a perpetual like smorgasbord of madness. Yeah. Some of which tracks and which I'm really entertained by. And then it craters off in the, at the end. Right. Tommy beats Michael to death with that pipe and injects him with the seven up. <laughs> Mountain Dew. Uh, yeah. And then Loomis says he still has some business to attend to, which I know is from the previous yeah, cut. Yeah. There's no real reason why he would have business still to attend to. No. What happens then? What's that whole deal? Basically, well, I mean, this is again the difference between theatrical and producers because Loomis in the theatrical cut goes back inside Smith's Grove for some reason. Michael has got up left his mask and we hear Loomis scream. So we can only assume that Michael has finally killed 
Loomis. The thing is that scream was used from a previous sequence that was yes. filmed for the producers. Which cut. again makes way more sense. Yeah. In which Tommy has snuck in and interrupted this ritual, uh, stopped Michael by putting runes on the ground. Literally stopped Michael in his tracks by putting runes on the runes of light on the ground to kind of counteract his evil. Loomis goes back in to discover Michael on the ground, takes off the mask, reveals its win. Why, you know, this is again a followed head reference. But, but you're a priest. Why did you take the other priest's clothes? <laughs> yes. you know, I don't understand why Michael. I don't understand why Michael. He fucking does that got, a lot, though. Yeah. I don't understand why he had to change into the man in black clothes. Yeah. I also don't understand why the man in black wears cowboy boots, but, you know, whatever. Then when says it's your game now, and Donald Pleasant looks at his wrist and sees the thorn the tattoo card, appear, yeah. and the implication is that he's been taken over by the evil so neither ending works at all no and again i just think it's it's one of those things when you're constricted you can't shoot new footage with this actor you gotta work on what you got and this is before the you know, carrie fisher the, the carrie fisher in, in, in yeah, but, skywalker but, but it also like you could have done i'm sure you could have done something else yeah. also um again i'm really not trying to say i I, I have sounded snarky about this movie when I led with the fact that it does actually mean a lot to me. And I love I love the set pieces. I love Paul Rudd, Donald Pleasance, Marianne Hagen. It's a really fun watch if you really check your brain at the door. Like, massively check your brain at the door. But what frustrates me about it is, did they really think... I mean, these are not... These are not stupid people. I think a very common misconception is that industry execs and industry people and studio people are not smart. These are very smart people. Sometimes creatively, they don't make the best choices, but they're not dumb. Did they really think anyone would be interested in this as a cliffhanger? I don't think the theatrical cut, I, I don't like the producer's cut ending. I think it's a little bit weird. I think the theatrical cut ending is the filmic equivalent of saying, just just end it. Yeah. Just get it over with. Michael's still alive. We'll we'll worry about this in seven. Yeah. And that's kind of where we've where we Well, you're to... forgetting the most interesting aspect of the movie. That great Brother Kane song. Oh, of course. Or is it Brother Crane? I think it's Kane. Brother Kane. Uh I love that song. That's yeah. so nineties. That's so like uh and I I this is gonna sound really mean, I don't mean it to. It's like royalty free Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a true. really great Pearl Jam song when you can't afford Pearl Jam. Yeah. And I, I love it. It's a great song. It's really fun. And the TV spots that you can see online that have that song in it, it's so 90s. I yeah. love it. And they that is a trope they carried on with Scream and Scream 2. Yeah. We're using like pop songs in their TV spots. I love that Brother Kane stuff. It plays a couple times in the in the movie. It doesn't play at all in the producer's cut. But it's um you hear it in the in the in the barn coming through the radio, <laughs> weirdly. I think I mean and, and I mean that's that's literally where we come to an end in Halloween 6 in more ways than one because now we're totally done. We're with, totally done with this we're, mythology. We're totally done with this trilogy of 4, 5, and 6. We're totally done with the... For this part of the franchise, we're totally done with the family lineage sort of thing for... Uh, in Jamie, anyway. We're done very, I guess, stylistically... You know, everything's about to be reinvented. In, Pretty much. In, in, uh, in three years with H2O. Yeah, and I think it was the lifeline that this franchise needed. Yeah. Scream 6 and Halloween 6 is an interesting comparison because one is considered by many 
to be the strongest entry in the franchise since the second one, which is Scream 6. And then obviously one is among people's very bottom tier. So Scream 6, yeah. So it opens in a downtown restaurant in New York. Uh, and we follow uh, Laura Crean, which is a fun little yeah. Easter egg played by, um, oh my God, uh, ah, Samara Weaving. Um, and Brilliantly she, played, by the way. Uh, th- th- this oh my is, God, so with with four pages of screen time. Interesting. Of, uh, four pages of script, four minutes. Interestingly enough, um, my um, my sister, when we first watched this movie, was like, as soon as Samara Weaving was like, she was like, oh God. I, I don't know if I can watch this. She's For some such reason, a she winning, has, she's she such is, a winning presence. She has, and she does a, so much with. She's such an umbilicus to the audience, which I absolutely love. People get upset because they would have liked her to have stayed in the movie a little longer, or or come back as a as a more substantial character. I it's quality, not quantity. And the minutes that we get with her, I really love her. And for someone who's like very briefly on screen and kind of. When she's gone, the movie's like her role in the movie is gone. It doesn't really have an impact on the proceedings. Yeah. I still really love that time we Agreed. spend with her. Um, so she's on her phone talking to a date who then gives her a call and uh, lures her outside to an alleyway under the auspices of trying to come and find her. Um, but he turns out to be a ghost face and uh, she is stabbed and summarily, summarily weaving. Oh. Um uh, subsequently killed and in a move that I, I do think would have shocked many sort of casual Scream fans we don't go to the title card Ghostface pulls off his mask and we discover that he's actually you know Zero the Lobby Boy taking a ex- an extremely dark left turn in his career and murdering uh, college professors um, it's it, Tony Revolori yeah. who is this is the first time I've seen him play such a dark role I yeah. love him in this movie he's so, so much good. and do you know what I genuinely remember there was a collective cinema gasp when, yeah. he, when he took off the mask and everyone was like, whoa. And I do think going? that's because a lot of people know who he is. Oh yeah, 100%. But the thing is as well, that I think that was a great opening sequence and yeah. had it have ended, had Scream 6 have come on the screen at that moment after she died, we were like, oh, good opening. The fact that it yeah. carried on was just like, whoa. But it does feel like it's building towards something else in that yeah. opening. I do think if the title card had come up, we probably would have been like, what? Because mm. it does feel like a first half or a first third of something. Yeah. Because obviously the real opening then follows where Jason, who's who's the character Tony Revolori's playing, returns home and, and chats with his partner in crime about what he's just done. And uh, you find out that he's not talking with uh, his friend at all. He's talking with Ghostface. And uh, they do a fun little, I think a fun little twist on the voice changer because he's yeah. always Ghostface. He's not yeah. emulating somebody else and they make a little joke about it. And also the um, fun little joke oh, is yeah. the, the inclusion of uh, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, Manhattan, which as soon as I saw that was like, we're all good. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think 5 was... Five was very solid proof that these guys know what they're doing. And then in six, it's like, oh, not only do they know what they're doing when they're making a screen movie, they're also just great fucking filmmakers because they key into their own stuff a little bit more this time. And it really works. I think that's what it is. You know, one of the one of the things about the entire screen franchise is that it works on a lot of different levels. One of them is that it makes these little references to different movies. And if you get them, great but it doesn't stop it being a really good, energetic, mystery, murder, horror, thriller. Yeah. If you don't, I remember seeing that there and just going like, you guys get it. 
you guys get oh, yeah. exactly what Kevin Williamson was trying to do and Wes Craven was trying to do back in the nineties, and you're redoing it. And I got like I'm a, I got that joke. You got that joke. My niece who was with us did not get that joke. Yeah, but it doesn't did matter. Did not affect no. the scene one iota. He is then killed by a ghost face that we don't know yet. Who whom we don't know yet. After he finds his partner dismembered in the in the fridge, yeah. something that again six movies in I don't think is uh, a friend who was with us that night was like ah, don't know about that that's not scream and I was like but that's okay because we're six movies in and it's not not working those it's little also things different, you know it's a, it's also different killers so you can yeah justify changes in ammo and stuff like that you know because it's different people so do you count uh, Jason Tony Revolori as a ghost face in the pantheon of ghost faces. Technically. I guess so, yeah. So right off the bat, this movie has a new theme that I really dig from Brian Tyler that I feel is the Sam and Tara theme. It plays yeah. over the opening, uh, it plays over the Paramount logo and then it actually carries on through the rest of the movie. Love that motif, that new iteration of, of this generation that we've got now. Um, I think the opening is, I think it's really fresh and I so love good. the spin that it takes. I... Um, I think it's a different kind of twist than what a lot of the fans have talked about over the years. Some of them did talk about a ghost face being revealed in the opening. Yeah. I don't know that many people who clocked a ghost face then getting killed by another ghost face yeah. who they didn't know. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I, I These new movies seriously have a trend of bucking the trends of the other opening kills with Tara surviving in yeah. five and now a ghost face being revealed in six. And it makes me really excited, you know, for when we get seven, cause we're getting seven thoughts versus all. <laughs> please, um, please. I'm really excited to see how they spin it on its head in, in seven or yeah. again. Um, so then we're introduced to Sam again at a late night therapy session, <laughs> um, where Henry Zerny, her psychiatrist is unprofessionally unnerved by her homicidal tendencies. Oh God, yes. Like what a douche, like, like fuck off. Yeah. Like, is he walking to go to a prison and interview the murderers and be like, Oh, this isn't too much for me. This is intense. See you later. Yeah. And so he kicks her out and she returns to her apartment and looks for Tara inquiring about her, uh, inquiring as to her whereabouts with her very cool roommate, Quinn. Um, I really loved the character oh my God. Quinn in this movie. Uh, I love where we'll talk about it in a bit. All the supporting characters yeah. in this. In this. So the good. friend, this is okay. Best friend group since best supporting group of characters since two. No, yeah, I, yeah. I don't count like, you mm. I don't count five because they're all, I kind of see them as all co-leads. Okay. Whereas you've got your core characters here. You've got the core four and Kirby and Gale and, and all those guys. But, uh, but the supporting characters are Annika, Quinn, Ethan, Detective Bailey. Those, those are all really fun characters to me. Yeah. Do you know what? I have to agree. Um. So, so Quinn tells her that Tara's at a party and she is drinking her troubles away and almost hooking up with a creepy dude until uh, Chad takes time off from training his university protege uh, to save her, uh, along with Mindy and her girlfriend, Annika, another yeah. just absolute baller supporting character who yeah. I love. So this is kind of our new blood. Yeah. All of these characters are kind of our new our new ducks that are going to get knocked off and some of them are going to be doing the knocking off. Which is, by the way, just in the, yeah. is, is the problem that I kind of find with the Scream movies. Cause, mm. And you and I talked about this before. You know, the problem with Scream is once you, when you establish that there are the core four. Yeah. There's the core four and there's Gale and whatever. Okay. 
those ones will not be the killer. They yes, and I think anyone who thinks that that should be a twist in an upcoming movie should never be allowed near a, a, a screenwriting software. Agreed. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, I totally agree. But the problem with that is that you, by simple mathematics, you kind of go, okay, well, it has to be her or him or him or him. Right. And you're kind of going, okay, cool. But yeah. they play, I do think they have all, they all, and maybe this is why I like this group the most uh, after the second one, they all play against your suspicions of them yeah. better than I've seen it done before. Because, well, I mean, everybody knows Quinn, Ethan, and Bailey are all the killers. There's three killers this time, and they're all a family. But Quinn is so fun as the kind of new new age best friend that I don't suspect her is deranged. Ethan is so like unassuming and kind of affable and goofy that you're like, he wouldn't, I don't think he has it in him. And Annika, who obviously doesn't turn out to be a killer, but even if she was, it was like, I just, I just, I buy them all as individuals that I don't know if any of them I totally would agree. be killers. I totally agree. And I love it. I think the, this was, this whole sort of distinction has been the only screen movie that I nailed really early on. All three? All three. And I'll tell you working as a family. Yes, I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was one, one line that did it, and it was when Quinn is talking is, about her brother. Yes, yeah, because it was like okay, she's talking about her brother, and Billy is obviously he, he's just he even says himself, of course it's me. He's set up yeah. to be the killer. So you're kind of going, okay, well he is the killer, and he never killed Quinn. And she talked about a dead brother, so that's probably Richie. And Ethan really looks like him. <laughs> I was just instantly like all three. Okay, I mean, I guess I'll 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 trust that you that you called it question mark. Um, so Sam shows up to the party. Answers uh, on a postcard. Did, <laughs> did Jim really clock it? <laughs> Sam, oh yeah, that we should do a poll. <laughs> did Jim genuinely get the end of No Scream Six, or is he talking shit? So. Sam shows up. I also knew that uh, Kevin Spacey was Kaiser Soze the entire movie. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> Sam shows up and stops Tara from getting into a bad situation at the party by tasering her uh, her, her Lothario in the uh, in the balls, and obviously Tara gets very angry and leaves the party with the friend group who are subjected to a very awkward domestic in the middle of the street, which is interrupted when Sam is basically attacked has water and a milkshake thrown on her or no cherry coke cherry coke thrown on her um by some passersby who have read internet rumors that she was the mastermind behind the killings in the previous movie in woodsboro so since so interestingly this is the first scream movie since the first one that doesn't immediately go to the next day after yeah. the opening kill and it's the first scream movie where so much of the action takes place in the immediate aftermath of the opening kill which I find really oh, interesting. That's so true. Wow, yeah. I never noticed that. You're totally right. So Scream has that brief scene with Sydney and Billy and then goes to the next day yeah. where everyone's soaking up the aftermath. Scream 2, obviously. All the other movies do. Scream 6 hangs around that night so much that I find that really interesting. I, I just think it's a different kind of... I just think it's a different kind of vibe that, again, it's it's... It seems minor, but it's yeah. actually for for us died in the woods scream fans. It's a really cool twist, a really new evolution of it. And to cross over uh, between our podcast again, it's a Halloween movie because it's set on it Halloween, is a and it kind of underplays the Halloween yeah, a little bit, totally but it's good. very very cool. Yep. So we get a little bit of love time, a little bit of relationship time as I adore Tara. That scene. It's a great scene. It's Love lovely. Scene. Beautiful and, and, and music. 
I mean, so Mason Gooding, I mean, people might think he is already, but Mason Gooding is going to be a movie star. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be a huge movie star because I don't know what it is, but there is just charisma yeah. sweating off him. Yeah. And he's so likable. So I mean, he's adorable. so damn sweet. And I love Chad. And I still stand by, if you've got to kill one of that core four, you got to kill Mindy. Like, no, no, no. I <laughs> yeah, love I Jasmine Savoy Brown. She's absolutely fantastic. And she, she steals a lot of this movie, but you've got to have that central trio of Sam, Chad and Tara. Now, maybe you could kill Sam and have it be Tara, Chad and Mindy. That I guess would be agreeable, but you cannot lose Chad. He's so, he is so important. He is the lifeblood of that group in the way that I think Dewey was as well. Yeah, Although a, interestingly, there's less interpersonal conflict in this group yeah. than there was in the original trio. True. The, the other thing is, as well, you know, to jump ahead, there's a, there's a really beautiful scene. And I think I'm sure it's fine on the page, but I think it's performances of, uh, Gooden Jr. And, uh, Jasmine Savage Boy Brown were, they're talking about that stakes are now higher. And she says, I don't want to get hurt again. Yeah. And she sounds so... Vulnerable. Vulnerable. And, and, and genuine. Sweet. And he says, nah, me too. And she said, and she kind of catches herself and goes, I, I didn't mean that. Like, you know, she doesn't want him to get hurt again. And he says, I know, I know. It's a really beautiful the, moment. Yeah, it's and really, I think yeah. It, yeah. And I think, as I say, I think it's fine on the page, but it's, there are performances that just and make that come alive. I know it's minor to a lot of people. And to casual fans, this is not as macular as it is for me. But they are Martha's kids. Yeah. We met Martha 23 years ago. And now we're we're giving so much of a shit about her kids as they yeah. go to college and try to yeah. survive. That's what this franchise has that other movies don't. Great. So we also find out that Sam's nursing a little relationship that she's keeping secret with uh, Josh Segura, uh, who plays Danny Brackett. Fun hot, little Easter egg. Hot guy. Hot guy across the street. And she's keeping it from everybody because she wants to, I think she wants to protect yeah. basically Tara. I think that's why she does everything. Um, she She's keeping everything very, very on the DL. And then they find out about what Tony Revolori's done. Yes. So news of the murder of Jason uh, hits the apartment block and the gang uh, have differing opinions on what to do. Sam, as Tara says, makes the unilateral decision to flee the fucking state, ignores a call from Gail Weathers, and then they find out from Detective Bailey, who is Quinn's dad, that Sam needs to come to the police station because her ID has been found at the murder scene. She goes to the, make her way to the police station. Tower accompanies her. And after a missed call from the dead, Richie, they're attacked in the Dega. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but uh, just to go back, one of my favorite lines uh, in the entire movie, when uh, hot guy, Danny, uh, walks in and he says, what's going on? <laughs> and Jason Kutin goes, okay, suspicious new guy. We got yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. He's, um, yeah, he's, that, it's a really, yeah, he's just, Chad's just the bomb. So on their way to the, to the police station, they get a phone call from the dead Richie's phone and they are attacked in a bodega and thus begins one of the coolest and most innovative scenes in the entire franchise so far, Ghostface with a shotgun. Yeah. Which is also uh, takes place in a bodega named Abe Snake, which, which is, is a which is the pseudonym that our dear Wes Craven, Grand OS, used to make pornography under allegedly. Well, not high end yeah. adult films. And just again speaks volumes to yeah. Radio Silence being true fans. 
So good. Love it. So good. What do you think of the bodega scene? I love the bodega scene so much. I think it's a, it's, uh, <laughs> I've never been to New York. I would hope that the police response time would be <laughs> a little bit faster. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I think I mean, it's it is very quick. Yeah. I think it's a really, really good scene. And uh, Ghostface is fairly relentless. And also for the first time, I don't know that this is influenced by Halloween 2018, but we get a new mask. We do. Sort of look as well. This sort of worn, which again plays into the plot of yes. the movie we'll discover later on. But again, it's nice to see a bit of a change up in terms of the, oh, yeah. what is traditionally just the exact same costume. And again, like aesthetically, this bodega sequence is all handheld, you know, and this is also the first movie in the series not to be shot with anamorphic lenses. So mm-hmm. it's shot spherical and cropped. I didn't notice. And I'm obsessive about that sort of shit. <laughs> you are. That's how great this movie is. Yeah. It still it doesn't make it. If a movie's not great, if it's shot anamorphic or not, like I'm not saying that, but but with a, with, with the look so baked into the franchise and the world, like anamorphic is to scream, the fact that I didn't notice is a testament to how amazingly effective mm-hmm. all of this movie is. It's handheld, the scene in the bodega, and it's very gritty and grimy and, and, and it's just, it's dark and it does not feel like Wes, and that is absolutely fine. Yeah. Because we are so, we give so much of a shit about these sisters and this world, and it's so terrifying and nasty that they've hooked into the most important thing, which is characters in jeopardy that you don't want to get hurt. It's also very That's quiet. what Wes heard about more than anything else. There's not, there's no score no. underlying this here. I also think, just to give props to the actresses again, I think Sam and Tara... Jenna Ortega and oh, Melissa, Barrera. Melissa Barrera are instantly vulnerable. Yes. And we don't, and I don't mean that in a, in a sort of dismissive way. No, I'm saying in a sort of, we, we really want them to survive. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, we also know that they're going to get themselves out of it. Not that something miraculous is going to happen, but they're going to get themselves out of it. Yeah. And she does yeah. with that business with the can and all that sort of stuff. It's, and it's, it's great. And any franchise can cook up cool sequences like that six movies in. Here's an interesting comparison to Halloween 6. Halloween 6 has really cool set pieces. Scream 6 has really cool set pieces. But you give so much of a shit because yeah. of the work that Scream 6 puts into the characters and the stakes, stakes and the jeopardy. Yep. So, um, so Sam and Tara then chat with Detective Bailey uh, at the police station. And we are reintroduced to FBI agent Kirby Reed. A returning Hayden Panettiere, who uh, says that she's been investigating Ghostface attacks and uh, wants to basically get involved in this particular uh, case. And then as they leave the station, Sam and Tara are besieged by Gail Weathers, who... Probably my least favorite uh, incarnation of this movie. Yes, I agree. I don't like what happened to Gail in this movie. I think she needed to take a back seat but I just don't like her in this movie. Yeah. There's very little, she's not as sculpted in this movie yeah. as a character. You always get that she's a reluctant hero in the other ones and you, but yeah. she's a hero in this one. I, it's also just, it's, it's you weird know, to see and Courtney her, Cox is good as ever, yeah, but oh, I just, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, I think, when you, again, it's a, it's a problem with previous installments. When you go away from the character having such a good arc in five, back to score, yeah. with no rhyme, no reason, no explanation, nothing. It just feels a little bit 
that's a shame. This scene has a great Easter egg. It repurposes Trouble in Woodsboro, Marco Beltrami's original cue from Scream 1. And I love that. I love that little fan service stuff. I think that's great. So that works. And I like the way they explain away Sydney um, being uh, basically having whisked herself away to safety with Mark and the kids. That stuff really works in this scene. That's yeah. all good. Tara getting her punch in. That's all good. There's just something about Gail and her arc in this that feels hollow. Yeah. And it's also sort of, it's, it's a little under because, you know, she, she's written a book about the events mm-hmm. in, of the previous after movie. After saying she wouldn't. After saying she wouldn't. It's kind of just, it's a bit just, of a shame to see yeah. her character fall from grace so rapidly. Yeah. I, I, I And so, and, and by the way, so uh, invisibly, because this all happened. Off screen. Off screen. While everybody yeah. else kind of grew, it's just like, she seems like a thorn in their sides now. Yeah, yeah, and this is a this is a character who we have watched solve these things, as she says in four, and really we live the legacy through her and Sydney. And I don't know, I don't love the way she's, I don't love the way she's handled in this movie. But again, that's just my opinion. That's your opinion. Yeah. It's the way we read it. So Henry Zerny cements himself as this movie's Kyle Gallner by getting murdered brutally on his doorstep so that Ghostface can steal Sam's psychiatric file. And simultaneously, Mindy explains the rules of a legacy sequel to the new kids. Which again, in in correlation with part five, feels I'm not so inserted. hot on this. Yeah. yeah. I like this a lot more than five because yeah. she is so good here and she has so much fun with this. <laughs> but I just don't love the movie stopping in its tracks for these things. There are so many, but there's ingredients here that make it way more fun. Mason. Uh, Chad taking notes yeah. is one of the funniest like things I've seen. I, I think to Quinn saying she's sex positive, positive. is great. Well, this scene has the biggest laugh in the movie for me. And it's so minor, but I literally killed myself laughing in the cinema. And I I laugh every time I watch it. And it's when Ethan goes, am, am I in the friend group? Yeah, and it's so <laughs> earnest and genuine. And it's so funny. Yeah. It's the way he's like, it's almost like he's validating himself yeah. for something. Um, I love that's the biggest laugh in the movie for me. So yeah, I I um I don't mind it as much in this movie. I, I quite like the monologue because of these other things going on around it that are really fun. I find it harder to digest in five as well because yeah. there's so much being thrown at us. It's a proper dump of information in five, whereas here it's a healthy blend of like fun with the characters, but also here's what you need to know. Yeah. Um. It also is the lead into a really fun post credit scene. It's fine. It you know I, I I don't I don't mind it. Red right hand is fun. Yeah. You know we just got the. I remember um when we went to see this uh, and we all stayed around for the post credit sequence and when she says you know not every movie needs to have a post credit sequence our mutual great friend Margaret just turned over to me and said we just got fucking trolled. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, on a par with Spider Man Homecoming is the best yeah. trolling of a post credit scene. So. We get a little, so Kirby outlines the past Ghostface killers to Bailey then, and uh, we get a little bit of a meta, I think, a meta salute to Scream 3 when she says, credit to, kudos yeah. to Roman for yeah. ambition. Yeah. I think that's an in-universe acknowledgement of like, you guys need to give that movie a fucking break. Because yeah, it is good. True. And we have, we had no right for it to be as good as it is, or as timely as it turned out to be. And then the gang gather in the apartment for a dinner that goes awry. And this is where... My issues begin and I'm yes. trying to stay snark free. 
And it, who gives a fuck what my issues are? The movie's really good and did really well. And but, by the way, I know what your issues are going to be because they're my issues. But the latter sequence is brilliant. Well, this is, but this is tied into it. Yeah, This is exactly. what I'm going to say. So again, who gives a shit? If you're six episodes in, I'm assuming you are interested in the stuff we have to say. So thank you. But obviously this is just my opinion. So Donny sees Quinn being attacked by Ghostface in the apartment opposite. The gang are having dinner, so he airdrops them a photo of her being attacked. And their response, which goes against anything we've come to know them to do, is to hover in front of the door and just watch it while she gets murdered. Yeah. That is not Sam. That is not Tara. That is not Chad. It's a plot convenience yeah. so that they can feasibly have what we know to happen in the third act happen exactly and that undermines what those characters would have done absolutely and again like i adore the direction that these guys employ in these movies it's it's brilliant but i remember thinking at the time that has to be a fake kill because it's so uncharacteristically badly directed and they also it's, to me i don't think it's badly directed it's not that it's it's written. Oh no, that's what I mean. that's what I mean. It's it's it, the excuse is that it has to be fake because otherwise these guys drop the ball. Yes, and they don't drop the ball. And, and it is. I understand. I mean, again, there's so many great set pieces. Like the the latter set piece is such fun writing and such clever writing. So I'm not saying that this is bad writing. It's just. It's just tricky, and, and but this is the this is the domino, the first domino to fall with a series of things that I just find really troubling about certain things that happen on happen from here on out. So Tara and Chad get outside, but they don't come back. They don't come back. They don't see what's about to happen on the balcony, even though the doorway, as we establish in the next scene, you have to come out the door to get out onto the street, and you mm. would have seen what was going on. I know, listen, we've we've bitched about logic policing before, but it's the thing I was talking about where sometimes you're walking down the street with a handgun and you're asking yourself to be arrested by the logic police. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so they get outside, um, the, 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 the remaining women, uh, Mindy, Annika and Sam barricade themselves in a room. Uh, uh, Danny throws a ladder, uh, from his, uh, apartment i don't know why anyone would have a ladder that size in an apartment like that but who well, that, i'm gonna leave who gives it's a, fuck? a telescopic ladder that's fine now what does that mean it means it folds so it's 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 one size in the apartment yeah and maybe and he's a handyman exactly. maybe he needs it for work yeah exactly. um I, I i can live with that yeah so can i it's also so, very judgment night which i always loved movie i always adored with incidentally stars kubik and jr i need to see that again so uh ghostface uh, annika has been stabbed by ghostface they uh climb across the ladder to danny's apartment one at a time Ghostface manages to get into the room. Mindy and Sam make it out, but Annika is brutally killed in a really shocking set piece, a really shocking death. So the thing is, it's one of the best sequences in the entire franchise. Yeah. It's on a par with the cop car in two. It's so frustrating from the point of view of character motivations. First of all, where are Sam? Where are Tara and Chad? Second of all, why didn't Annika go first? She was the most severely wounded. There are one too many things in this sequence that don't check out. Yeah. You know? Agreed. I mean, what do you, I mean, what do you, what are you, what do you think? What did you think the first time you saw it? First time I saw it, it was, 
yeah, again, I was just, it was just the way that was handled. I just kind of thought these guys would do better. And again, my alarm bells started ringing. Yeah. This is so off form. Yeah. That it must be a plot point. So I kind of sensed what it was very early on. I didn't logically police it as much in terms of the geography of the building, you know, that they would have to go outside and see and, and, and all that there didn't never occurred to me, but I think what it did do was make me go, do you know what? This is, this is a great, this is, this is a sequence of two halves and the first half didn't work. And the second half really worked. Yeah. And you sort of go to yourself. So that first half must have something more to it. It's what you said about you can logic police a movie after the fact. That doesn't mean that you win. The movie wins. Yes. Because it's been so effective that you can't be a dick about it until you're sitting thinking about it later. Yes, exactly. I was watching this going, well, we're, wait a minute, we're fucking... Why did Sam and why did Tara and Chad not do anything? Yeah. I'm not saying they could have grabbed Annika, you know, from that height, but surely having two people on your side right below you might have done something. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it, it, at the time, it bugged me. It bugs me on rewatches. It's a brilliantly put together scene in terms of energy and suspense. It's just missing a, a few things. So at the crime scene, then Ethan shoots to the top of the suspect list. Um, despite his protest that he was at an econ, um, Bailey vows to work with Sam and Tara to catch the killer because now Quinn, his daughter, has been a, a supposed victim. Gil shows up with Kirby, and the gang's finally all here to quote the Lethal Weapon Four tagline. Gil leads them to uh, another interesting element of this movie: the shrine. Um, that she reveals was being kept by Jason and his friend, full of police items and memorabilia from the stab movies and and the real crime scenes. Yeah. Billy Loomis reappears as a force ghost. Um, which which is sorry, yeah, the, yeah. The, the evidence sort of thing. It's a no. It's it's a logic police hellhole, but it's a fan trivia dream where you oh that was the but that screen, was the phone but, that was the jumper that was the that was the jacket that can was I, this can I say something though sure scream fans are way smarter than that yes scream I fans agree. don't need 100%. hey that's like this hey that's like that I liked it didn't need it didn't need it for three four or five don't I need agree. it for six I agree but the thing is in the, the environment of cinema these days all about those like little throwbacks you know where it's like how did han solo get the dice that hung on the millennium falcon it's like now we know and i agree i think yeah. that it's to the movie's completely... credit that we find out that this shrine is fan service in the yes, third act exactly so that's kind of again a really clever having the cake and eating it too thing i love that this movie and franchise can have its cake and eat it too yeah this just bugged me yeah agreed um so yeah billy loomis reappears as a force ghost to remind Sam that she's a murderer. Um, <laughs> Kirby and Mindy play fun trivia, which Jim, let's talk about their trivia off. Okay. I mean, we agree with everything they said and we have had those conversations ourselves. Very true. Psycho and 2, underrated. This is the thing about it. Is I remember that was, there was a critic who shall remain nameless who made a specific point of this in the review to say, you know, like, oh, who talks like that? And I was like, I talk like that. I, I still don't know how I feel about the shrine. I know it logically checks out once we know the ending, um, but it actually makes it even more ridiculous. I guess it's a good time to... No, no, no. I'll wait until the third act because okay. I'm going to point something out that I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on because I don't know if you and I have talked about it yet. Okay. I really enjoy the character stuff. 
when Kirby goes to speak to Sam, uh, Gail and, or sorry, Kirby goes to speak to Tara, Gail and Sam connect, and then Bailey shows up with an interesting idea on how to turn the tables on Ghostface. The Kirby, Mindy, Gail, Sam character stuff is lovely. And that's, they, again, I feel like the reason this movie works is because these guys not only are massively talented writers and directors, but they get the stuff that matters. The interactions between these characters are what matters. I love that Kirby and Tara connect. I love that Gail and Sam connect. That's a lovely moment for Gail. Like I can bitch and moan about how Gail's handled most of the movie, but that is a nice moment and you can't discount that moment because it, it gives her a human. We learn about her family for the first time, her parents and stuff. It and it's, an, it's interesting know? as well that to go back ever so slightly, the fact that Quinn is now off the table as a suspect literally because she's in inverted commas dead means that Ghostface, you know, we're not we're not looking for oh well he wasn't there for this scene yeah. anymore, you know. So it's an interesting uh step as writers to sort but of say, again, okay, now we have a like, an anonymous ghostface killer who can be anywhere. Yeah, but yeah. look who she takes out in Gail's apartment. Yeah. It's, look, I'm not yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to say that she couldn't do that. That's not me saying that, but it's just who it's more about who he was rather yeah. than who she is. Um, so the guy in Goodyear Park to try and trap Ghostface, Kirby traces the call from a van, very, very Scream 2-y, and I love yeah. that they pointed out. Um, they realize Ghostface isn't actually near them, but is instead at an apartment uptown, which they realize is Gail's. Ghostface offs her live-in bodyguard stroke boyfriend <laughs> yeah. uh, and calls her before attacking who, who, her. Who, by the way, uh, you know, is evidently her, her boyfriend yet she still displays a picture very prominently of her and Dewey. <laughs> if I did it, I mean, if you did it, Dewey, or I did it, Dewey, and we lost him, I don't give a shit who we're dating after that. There's a photo of Dewey. The fucking, how dare you have a problem oh, with sorry. a Dewey photo? I'm sorry. I didn't, I forgot it was your screensaver. Um, yeah, if anyone dates Dewey, and it doesn't matter who, if you, if you dated Dewey, and then you dated, I don't know, who does everyone agree is just a, a hero on this earth if ever there was one. I don't know, like Desmond Tutu or whatever. You'd keep a fucking photo of Dewey up. That's how amazing Dewey is. I don't know if Desmond Tutu's single at the minute, but you know, the, the point stands. So Ghostface calls and attacks Gail uh, and she is an amazing chase ensues. Yeah. Again, these guys get they... how important this is. They get how important this moment is for the first call and the first big fucking chase that Gail's gotten since probably two. Yeah. And then they go and spoil it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I I don't think they spoil it all, but I get it. Sam and Tara show up, shoot at Ghostface who disappears. Gail, Gail dies, but doesn't actually die, but she dies. And then the paramedics throw in a quick 80-yard line and fuck off. It's, it's just a the, really, a look, it's a really cool set of sequences that roll into each other. I think the park, I actually prefer the park stuff to the shrine stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't prefer it to the ladder stuff, but I, the apartment ladder stuff, but I do prefer it to the shrine because it's investigative and it's active and that's right up my street. But Gail's call and she is his amazing. Yes. Where does it lose it for you? It loses it from the moment she, because she's so smart. She's so intelligent. She's so strong and direct and goes and gets the gun and then leaves the safety of a locked room <laughs> with one door to go and face off against a hidden ghost face. Now, the scene when, the, the the moment when she uses 
call back and you hear go through, huh? <laughs> you know. Oh my God, amazing. Hilarious, smart as hell. We but, saw this movie with the best crowd yeah, that night. They fucking loved that. Also, when she shoots at the door, every time I saw the movie, I thought someone was going, woo. <laughs> it's in the movie. It's yeah. Ghostface going, Ur! Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. It, going, it is. I thought someone was cheering for her in the, in the cinema every time. And then it was on my, my, uh, my Apple TV version of it. And I was like, what the fuck? It's, it's supposed to be the ghost face going, and yeah. then purring like a dog. Yeah. And it's, I think it's because it's, uh, I, I wonder, is it because she's actually hit the target? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but you know, again, that's a great moment, but I remember just even at the time, logic policing live and going like, why the fuck would you leave that room? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? The movie invites a lot of live logic policing. Yes. And I hate being logic police because I think it's the exact antithesis of what cinema is created for. But again, audiences, I think, will work with you to a point beyond which it's hard to get them back if there's so many ludicrous things. This movie doesn't lose me completely because I really like it. But that stuff is really, it's closer to losing me than any of the others because yeah. of how batshit so much of it is. And I think the problem is as well is like when you have a long way to fall, like whenever, <laughs> like, you know, when when a movie's pretty consistently ridiculous, yes, it's hard to sort of, you know, you don't go, it's like an equalizer. You know, you have plus 10, you have zero and you have minus 10. Yeah. It's hard whenever a... Uh, a movie is at zero and you fall to minus five. It's not that big of a drop. But when a movie is at 10 mm -hmm. and then it drops that. I mean, I don't even mind so that, noticeable. you know, I don't even mind it's a plot thread that's kind of come and gone, but that the killer is using the old masks and leaving yeah. DNA of the other guy. I don't mind that. No, I, That's fine. That's Cause fine. it's, it's it? the CC Cooper copycat. Yeah. That's yeah. always been yeah. a part of the screams, totally. but it's these things like, Gail dying, but not actually dying. Like, look, the sequence with her and Ghostface is every bit as incredible as we hoped. It's proof that these directors should get every movie going because of how well put together it is. But this is supposed to be Quinn. I have no doubt that Quinn could have taken on Gail like this. Yeah, It's throwing the fucking bodyguard through yeah. the living room with a dead weight. Which you and I couldn't do together. No, <laughs> no. And, and, and have you seen him? I mean, like... Most people couldn't do it. Yeah. So it's, I could live with that. I think I become particularly annoyed about that because of how asinine so many other things around yeah. this seem. Checking the brains at the door is fine. That stuff stretches it a little thin yep. in an otherwise amazing sequence. So the gang reassemble in the lobby of Gil's apartment building. Um, Danny joins them and Tara basically comes up with the idea to lure Ghostface in to the shrine and kill him. Um, they head off via the subway. And this is where I realized, my God, there's just an avalanche of set pieces mm -hmm. from, from the part, from the shrine onwards, which is great. I love it. Um, but they head to the subway to get to the shrine. Mindy misses a train and goes with Ethan separately. She's attacked and stabbed by a ghost face in a busy train station. Uh, nobody can help her. Ethan finds her when the train arrives, calls for help. The gang arrive at the shrine, minus Danny, who Sam tells to go away because she doesn't trust him. Uh, and they all head inside. Billy calls them from the police station. He's on his way. He gaslights them into believing that Kirby's ghost face. And Chad and Tara, after, you know, after escaping ghost face, they have a sweet little moment that's interrupted when we get a first in the franchise. Two ghost faces attack Sam, or attacks Chad at the yeah. same time. 
and fillet him. And uh, swipe their knives at exactly the same time, which I remember my nephew saw it. That is so cool. It is. It is a really cool moment. And by the way, the sequence on the subway, just to go back. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Early, I skirted past those two. Just phenomenally it's really good. good. It's, it's really good. Really, really good. And because it's, it works on so many, because you don't really, I mean, apart from the fact that the trailer kind of alluded to the fact that uh, Mindy was going to be attacked, you don't really know where the attack is going to come from. You have all these, or again, how it's going to end. Fantastic, uh, you know, trivia sort of things. of like, oh, that person's dressed up as... Oh, sure, the Easter eggs are amazing. Yeah, the, yeah. the Easter eggs are great. Um, and it's the first time in it really where, because this is one of my grievances with the movie, is that it moves it to New York City. It's the first time we've ever had an East Coast setting yeah. for a screen movie. And it doesn't exactly utilize the city that much, except in this scene. You know, well, I, yeah, I, because I doubt, it is also Montreal. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, I doubt that, you know, Woodsboro has a subway system. And yet it is very, so it is very quintessentially New York. You know, Mindy's kind of in a place of relative safety and the the logic police in you, you know, sort of, well, how are you going to get her away from the crowd of people on a subway? And what do you have? You have an ignorant New Yorker who kind of backs into her and moves, you know, ignorantly sort of moves her on down the carriage away from her vantage point of safety. That's great. That's, that's utilizing the setting. Aside from that, I don't think it made an impact for me. Yeah, I agree. And I also, I'm going to be annoying, but, but they've, I'm going to be annoying, but from here on out, it's just logically, none of this makes sense to me. Ethan's the only one at the subway to save her. Yeah. But he's one of the killers. Yeah. So he dumps her in the hospital and then goes to reveal himself as one of the killers. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, basically Chad's attacked by two ghost faces and then Sam and Tara are chased into the main area of the shrine where the finale basically unfolds. Killers reveal themselves as not one, not two, but three members of Richie's family. Ethan is the brother, Billy is the dad, and Quinn is the sister. And they're all getting revenge against Sam for what she did to their brother and son. Which is incidentally a nice little throwback to Scream 2. That's fine. That part doesn't really annoy me that much. It's how it's all ended up happening. They've been the one devising the Reddit posts and using the police connections to get the shrine, put it in Jason and his friend's name, steal all the evidence to form a, a a fan thing for Richie before he died. And then it's girl power, you know, Sam, Tara and Kirby fight them off, um, kill each of them one at a time in kind of funky, violent ways. The family are all killed. Quinn is shot in the head. Ethan is stabbed through the throat and then has a TV thrown over him. <laughs> last too. And uh, uh, Detective Billy is just, you know, basically gutted, uh, still less times than Chad, but gutted. And in the core four, plus Kirby, live to see another day. Chad survives. They have a sweet little reunion. Sam picks up a ghost face mask on the street, throws it away, and then walks into the sunset. So that's what happens in the movie. Yeah. Now it's time to fucking talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is my least favorite finale. It's so over the top. Yeah. And none of it checks out logically. And again... I know people who roll their eyes when you say it doesn't check out logically. I'm one of those people, but it's so, so much of it's egregious here. They slipped in a fake corpse to be Quinn. They put a prosthetic on Quinn. They put all of the stuff in the shrine. They put the shrine lease into Jason's name. They used the police connections to get all the masks. Like, it's so insane. 
Now, could all that happen? I don't even think so. But logic, okay, let's say it could. It's still mental. Yeah. It's still so mental. Especially when you break it down to its simplest thing, which is, okay, you wanted revenge on these people. Ethan lives with Chad. Quinn lives with Sam and Tara. This could have been taken care of overnight. I also have to say, and it's a side note, and I'm going to go entitled toxic fanboy here and you are more than within your rights to say shut the fuck up chad surviving the stabs it it actually annoys me i agree because dewey got stabbed three times a movie and it fucking hurt and you felt it these are cheap and they're quick and they're you know sharp and in and out and in and out stabs that you wouldn't survive yeah and it's it is a little bit like why are you guys so good at getting literally everything else right. You're the most talented filmmakers in the world who could have taken over Scream. I mean, I think they are. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody could have done as good a job as they could have. Why the fuck do you completely go apeshit when it comes to this? I would agree. It actually annoys me. I would agree. And I think that what it does is it actually cheapens the threat. Of, of course it does. Ghostface. Because, you know, little side story from scream one henry winkler is about to be stabbed and wes says to him do you think it would hurt and he said yeah god being stabbed would really hurt and wes said okay show me that scream and that's why you have this horrific death scene chad is being brutally stabbed so many many times from two different sides by two different ghost faces and still kind of looks very poignantly up and says run how can they get so much about Wes and how can he be such an inspiration for them and they like I don't get how you don't cur about the stabbing and the effect I just I just don't I'm throwing paper now (laughs) like it properly it's the only thing in this movie I can honestly say I hate I hate that I hate that more than I hate the voice changer yeah like I hate that yeah, and it's too. so annoying it's, it's, because you could do it once or twice yeah, and it would be really painful and you would buy that he may be like, yes, yeah. people can say, oh, you can be stabbed 19 times like mildly and one time severely and live. Yeah. Okay. It's the fact that it doesn't seem to hold weight. Yeah. It doesn't hurt when he's stabbed. Yeah. It's just brutal and quick and done. Yeah. It's also That's just, not scream. it's also, I even remember at the time when Tara goes over to him after it's kind of announced his life and takes his very essential oxygen mask off yeah. to kiss him. It's just a little bit, I hate being logic police, but that one is so egregious. I'll be honest, it's the only thing in these new sequels, which are, for my money, two of the greatest slasher sequels ever, and they will be seen as two of the greatest slasher sequels ever. We have no right for them to be as amazing as they are. That is the only element of them that I actually think tarnishes the legacy of Scream. Yeah, I would agree. It's so misjudged and annoying and avoidable. It even goes beyond Chad because I remember when when Sam drops Tara from the balcony, she allows herself to be stabbed by Ethan in order to stab him. And when she's talking to Chad, she gets stabbed previously. So she's been like, Mortally wounded. And Sydney and Gail sitting on an ambulance on their phones at the end of five. You know, it's just, but that one in particular where she literally drops her into a stabbing in order to stab the killer. It's just like, oh, 
No. So my thing that I wanted to talk to you about when it comes to this finale, I enjoy Dermot Mulroney's performance. I think it's really <laughs> it's fun. How he, it is, but I think it's really fun. I think all the performances are good. I think that, again, it's brilliantly put together. Even the way that it unfolds in terms of the writing is really good. But when you unpack so much of it, even in the moment, there are issues with this movie that I actually think are as offensively illogical as Scream 3. Yeah. I have issues with, I mean, I find it infinitely more conceivable that Roman's journey could have happened than I do that they could have swapped out a corpse <laughs> and fooled the NYPD. Yeah. But yet we literally have listened to fans shit on Scream 3 perpetually because of that voice changer and Roman being the brother. Like, I think Scream 6 is fantastic. It is still, it's still above four for me, but it's below probably the rest of them. Mm. But I kind of hope that this doesn't, I mean, it got great reviews and I'm glad it did because I thought it deserved them. It got a great box office reception and it deserved it and they're lovely people and I'm happy to see it for them. But I hope this doesn't continue into seven. I do hope some of it, if I was the head of a studio, if I was the head of Paramount and they came in, I'd be like, guys, see for seven, you do whatever you want. Just fix those fucking stabbings. Yeah. That's all that like it's so but it, tone deaf compared it, to the rest of it. But again, it's that thing that I said earlier about the equalizer. It's so brilliantly executed and well thought out and constructed and executed. And then something like that happens and you have you you know, it only serves to bring the movie down a few notches and yeah. you fall down a lot of notches from a great height. Yeah. At that moment. I think the I do think the finale, the third act here is is the weakest. And I think it's yeah. worse than four. Because four redeems itself for me in its third act. Um and the reason this one doesn't work isn't because of a lot of people are kind of people are kind of nasty about some of the performances and some of the writing. And no, no, that's that's bullshit. I just don't like the stabbings, and I just think it's all a little bit too crazy to yeah. be rooted in the Scream universe. So final thoughts on Scream Six, Jim. Final, I, I think you summed it up perfectly. I think it's it's a great it's a great sequel. So it's a great it's, sequel. It's wonder, it, it, I mean, and as you say, when when franchises change hands so drastically, not just the writer, not just the director, both those very iconic creatives that we've grown up in, when hands change so drastically and produce some such great results, it's. Yeah. Phenomenally good. And also, so many filmmakers will cynically say about franchises that we see new versions, new iterations of coming out every week. We did this for the fans. We did this for the fans. They don't mean it because they haven't written yeah. things truthfully. They haven't done, they, they've relied too much on cheap fan service and not enough on a good story and good characters and things that's like most, Wes Craven, never underestimate the audience's integrity. Everybody seems to do it. Audiences yeah. are so much smarter than people think. These Radio Silence guys and James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick, they get that. They have more respect for the fans than anybody who'll say they have respect for the fans because they actually write really good stories and really good characters and they know how smart their audience is. And I really respect that, which is probably why I'm so annoyed about the Stabs things because it's like, it's like when a good, it's like when your best student as a teacher does something dumb and you're like, you're the best student I have. Why are you doing that? You know, yeah. But hey, who gives a f like? I'm not saying I'm yeah. fucking. I'm just a knucklehead with a microphone. But, but I agree. A really great sequel. 
That's, it kind of wins. I mean, it kind of wins in every category for yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say just so, to wrap I mean, it up. I mean, better cost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, better set pieces. Yeah. I will say though, that was a tough one for me to decide because Halloween Six does have some really good set pieces. I think that the Halloween Six has really, really great set pieces. Like, for example, the bathroom scene, you know, with Jamie and stuff. It's great. And the telescope is similar to the the Quinn and yeah. and, and Danny watching her die stuff yeah it sure is i think ultimately though in halloween six it falls flat probably yes. because of i don't know whether it's budgetary limitations but it doesn't stick the landing as well as the sequences in scream six do no and scream six is the better sequel Agreed. scream six is the better entry in the franchise Agreed. um Lot to admire about Halloween 6 and the people who made it, but, well, not the producers, but the people who made it. Lots to admire in Scream 6. I would say they're both very much worth a watch. I think Halloween 6 gets too much hate. Yes. I'm worried that Scream 6 is getting too much credit. <laughs> um, I love it, but I do think I do think some of this stuff is actually really important. Yeah. And I hope with time, people maybe understand that these things are a bit all over the place. But here's another thing we got to say before we wrap up. They made this movie 10 months. That's another thing. That's you exactly know, what I was going to say. 10 months. That's, that's, Good God. That's another thing. And, that's you know, I think it's, you know, we talked about this last week with Halloween 5. You and Mustafa had always said about how it was rushed into production and that was the mistake that they made. And this is one of those movies that shows you that you can do it. You just have to have a good idea and great talent to kind of bring that idea yeah. to fruition. When you have a half-baked idea and you go out and start shooting a half-baked idea, it's not as good. It's not as work. good. So Scream 6 is the better movie in every way. I, I, I hate being hard on it because it's my baby, but I, there are some issues with, the, I get angrier in the third act. Those first two are fucking great. Yeah. Um, next week, Jim, it's changing up a little bit. Sure is. We are going to pair off remaining entries in the Halloween franchise because our Scream 6 sample has run a little dry or our Scream samples have run a little dry. Um, so next week, Halloween H2O, we will stay in chronological order. Halloween H2O will face off against Halloween 2018. Sure will. And we will discuss which is more effective as a retooling and a reset button. Uh, which movie has the better Laurie Strode? Which movie has the better Jamie Lee Curtis performance? Uh, she's great in everything, but you know. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll be comparing and contrasting them in so many different ways. And I'm really, really excited to have that this discussion. Is gonna, this is going to be an interesting one. Yes. Because even yeah. I don't really know where my opinion lies at, right at the moment. It's very exciting. Um, so yeah, if you've listened this far, we hope you've had a blast and we will see you next week for a kind of new dynamic uh, on Circle the Block again. Circle the Block again.